And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Stop it! Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, producer Paul Spitaro, Dr. Bill Robinson, and Scott H. Gardner now ply the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned, randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back. To the bins. I got nowhere else to go! I got nowhere else to go! I got nothing else. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spitaro. Over there is Dr. Bill Robinson, as usual. Hello. Today we got two guests with us. We have Mr. Al Sedano. Hey! And Mr. Blaine Dowler. Yeah, hey, thanks for having me on. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm glad you guys were able to come on. Uh, now, Blaine, this is your first Bins appearance, I'm thinking? It is, yes. Woo! We've recorded quite a few things together, but this is the first time on Bins. So why yeah. don't you give a little bit of your comics background for everybody? Okay. Um, I started reading young. First introduction was through the Archie line, which probably surprises no one, given that that was early 80s. and I was young. And then the, the first comic I started collecting regularly was G.I. Joe, as written by Larry Hama, because I was collecting the toys, and it was a well-written comic, so actually I kept reading the comic longer than I was interested in collecting the action figures. Uh, and then from there, it was New Mutants and New Warriors that caught my attention, along with classic X-Men, brought me into superheroes, and I took a bit of a break around the Infinity War, Infinity Crusade era for purely financial reasons, and then came back when the movie Renaissance hit, and I started picking up first essentials in bookstores, and then went to a local comic shop and started picking up a lot of the rest. And your uh, your Marvel podcast is still available on the uh, internet, is it? Isn't it? Uh, yes, the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels is... We're, I'm not producing any new episodes, but yeah, we did Countdown the top 75 greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers when they, they published that list. Woohoo! And, uh, yeah, Al and Paul were two of the several welcome guests that joined us for that. And, yeah, we went through all 75. And, yeah, that was, that yeah. was a, a... I mean, it was obviously finite for obvious reasons, but it was a good series that you ran, and I enjoyed the whole process of listening through it. Many of the 75 choices... Uh, I wasn't necessarily in agreement with, but those weren't your choices, so uh, I don't know that there's any point in debating it with you. Uh, but it was still a, it was still a, a really good lesson. So anybody who has an interest in that, you might want to seek it out. And like I said, it's kind of finite anyway, so uh, it's not like it's going to be overwhelming your podcast list. No, yeah, it's all 75 episodes are out there. I think the longest was pushing close to 90 minutes, and the shortest I think was al and i discussing incredible hulk 181 when we were like uh yeah this is on here because of the first wolverine if it was the second wolverine no one would care enough yeah. to put it on the list anyway but you know I what i think that was half our conversation about it was why is this on the list i've always been a little confused by that because the first wolverine really is the second wolverine 
Yeah, we even said in the podcast it's the first substantial appearance of Wolverine because he yeah. does have three or four panels in 180. I think he has one but. panel. I think he just appears on the last splash page, the closing splash page. Uh, that's I the th- only clear shot of him, but there is a, a conversation he's a part of that happens inside a building with the, the viewpoint outside the building. But so he's one, the source of speech bubbles, but you don't see him right. until oh, okay. that final page. But so that, one, like that one pales in comparison in value to 181, which is actually really his second appearance. So yeah. it's, it's, it's just a, a strange thing. I, I don't know. I always found that to be a little weird. Yeah, but that's the one where, you know, we actually got a feel for who he really is. So... And I'm going to even debate that with you because I don't think the Wolverine that appeared in that book is the same Wolverine that Chris Claremont and John Byrne were uh, putting out a couple of years later. That, that's true, but it was what what Len Wein and Paul Smith and Chris Claremont and John Byrne did with him grew out of 181 more than it grew out of 180. Had, yeah, okay, I'll give you that. Yeah. Yeah, had the creative teams been fired and replaced between 180 and 181, there would have had nothing in common. <laughs> right. Because Wolverine would have been an entirely blank slate. He would have been a guy with a very yellow and slightly blue costume and claws, and that's it. Yeah, well, it's. I don't think Wolverine started to really, because we need to tangent here so far, mm-hmm. but I, I don't think he really developed as a character until I think it was issue... 97 or is it 98 whichever one when when they the first sentinels issue when they reveal that the claws are part of him because i don't think up until that point i don't think anybody had even really considered that uh no they from what i remember because i read the uh the books that came out back in the 80s the x-men companion and i forget if it was the claremont or cockrum interviews but yeah they just kind of drew it that way and realize afterwards hey have he ever had the claws come out without the gloves on no oh people should react to this yeah mm-hmm. uh, it, it was it, i remember because i was collect- actively buying at that time and i remember it being like a an oh shit moment yeah so, well it so. was for banshee i remember that because <laughs> he did not see that coming when they were chained up side by side mm-hmm. but yeah and there's a little bit that they they had in mind but it wasn't very clear he got kind of knocked down in the fight an issue or two before that and storm stopped to care for him he's like no i'm okay i heal fast and we didn't even really know how fast it was just i'm a fast healer but we had no idea that was well, like an ability fast healer i think that was actually a few issues later i think that was in the savage land and a, a dinosaur bit his arm yeah, that's when we established that's when he how said, fast I, it was but there i think was that's little... when he said oh no i heal fast i thought if my memory is accurate but okay. then again, I could okay. be just getting old on you. Yeah, I yeah remember... and I, it could be the one that I read first, because mm-hmm. I initially read them in classic X-Men out of order as well. So I could be misremembering just as easily. Yeah, I just remember from the interview I was reading that basically from that first one in the clause, that's where they came up with the whole theory of, oh, this is how we can bring up Wolverine stuff. You never asked. Because I believe that's what he says to Banshee. Yeah. And Why they, didn't you yeah. tell me, lad? You never asked. And they realized, oh, that's how we're going to do this from now on. We'll just reveal things and it's full. No one ever asked me, so I never told you. Yep. Which to me, anyway, I, anyway, I don't yes. think any of these are issues that people pick to discuss today. No, no. Are so, you sure Wolverine doesn't appear in mine? What, 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 what are, are we doing these three books in today? I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave it to our guests to decide. 
Who wants to go first? Well, who, or if neither of you want to go first, then I go first. But who, who wants? Who should go first? Well, I was going to go first, but I and I brought Wolverine one eighty one. But never mind. Since we've already discussed it, we'll move on. <laughs> okay. So, well, here's the question: Do we want to end on a high point or a low point? I was actually thinking, since Blaine's the one out of the two, of, uh, at least out of me and him, that has a time constraint, maybe we should do his first. That I think that's probably the most uh, pragmatic no matter what, decision. Uh, that way, no matter what, he's involved in the conversation of his book. Yeah, it would be good to have him involved in, with his book. Okay. So you're Motion up first, Blaine. All right. Yeah, so I picked Avengers Spotlight 27, uh, which is... You know, not whoa, 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 wait a minute. Are you stealing our gig? What are you doing? <laughs> go, go ahead. I'm just teasing. It's going to talk about your podcast episode. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, this is the, uh, well, the series that started as Solo Avengers and kept that title for the first 20 issues until Marvel changed it at the request of retailers who said, can you keep them all starting with Avengers so that they're in alphabetical order and side by side on the shelves? so that it's easier to cross-sell. So that's why Solo Avengers became Avengers Spotlight, and West Coast Avengers became Avengers West Coast. Was ah. All the Avengers books would be side-by-side. Side. And I picked it just because, well, Paul put out the call for guests because I don't know how much detail he wants to go into, but schedules changed with people, so he needed someone quickly. And this is a book I had just read, because I'm doing an Axe of Vengeance read-through. Uh, quick reminder, Axe of Vengeance was the event that ran from the books published in late 89 to early 1990, in which Loki orchestrated things behind the scenes to get Doctor Doom, Magneto, and Kingpin together, and they had all the villains attack unfamiliar heroes to catch them off guard and, you know, then of course they're going to win, even though I'm about halfway through the event and every villain has lost so far. <laughs> so, uh, in this first issue, Hawkeye ends up going up against the Boomerang in that the first story of two. It was a, a split book. So, much like Tales of Suspense or Tales to Astonish back in the day, there are two stories. Uh, yeah, and then in the tail end, there's sort of like the, the backup Avengers facing off against Andy the Awesome Android. Yeah, poor Andy. Well, it was, this was before mm. they established him as kind of a uh, an innocent. Yeah, at this point, he's just really a mindless automaton who, do, who does what the Mad Thinker programs him to do with no inclination of any free will whatsoever. Oh, so you mean me and Paul, right? <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, we just need to figure out which one is the puppet master for the two of you. Hmm. Scott Gardner? <laughs> Please. I'm I'm looking at this book and the, the first one uh and I'm going to I'm going to use Tom Harris's line cuz Tom was going to join us tonight as well, uh but he ended up having to work. Uh so he commented that uh this was not the high point of the Avengers run. Says uh, not a high mark for the series. Says uh, Hawkeye has a bladder infection. Stunning, stunning storytelling. Uh, he can use his penicillin arrow to beat that one. So that's that's essentially Tom's thoughts on this book. Uh, I have to say, less so with the story than the art in this first part. 
the uh, Hawkeye against uh, Boomerang. Uh, I'm really not at all enamored with the art, which is by Al Milgram and inked by Don Heck. It just, to me, it looks simplistic and bad. The second story, there's occasional moments where it kind of steps above. That one's drawn by uh, Dwayne Turner with inks by Chris Ivory. Stingray looks really sharp in most of the panels he's in. But then this, uh, like the faces on these characters, actually Andy the Awesome Android also looks pretty good. But, well, uh, and that's probably because people with faces don't look good. Yeah, I was just going to say the faces on the people just don't look good. Yeah, I was going to say, some do, some don't. Like, I think Moondragon and Hellcat look okay, but Firebird looks weird. And uh, scientifically, is that possible for her to use her flame powers to lift tons of metal with convection currents, Blaine? Have you ever done um, that, Blaine? <laughs> No, in order to, like, a conduction current, you have to be in a container. That's the whole point. Okay. You've got a container that's hotter on one side than it is on the other. So the hot air rises up that side, and then it cools off and falls down the other. If you don't have a lid and walls, you don't get convection currents on small scales. I mean, even if she heats the air underneath so that the, the hot air rises, it wouldn't it lift it. it if I were them, I would have tried to find some way to to have, you know, some sort of balloon or something. So she was using it to heat it like a hot air balloon and carry it that way. Mm. Which mm. might work a little bit better, even if it's not the best of the visuals. I suspect this is just an era where, you know, the creators of Firebrand really want Firebrand to take off, so they're trying to just ramp up her power set and make her more cool, because more powerful automatically means more cool, right? Guys? Right? Well, one thing well, I yeah, would say girl. is that... Uh, oh, Batman's popular, right? Bad, bad science doesn't necessarily hurt books' chances. And uh, for that, I just point you to Stan Lee of the 1960s. Magnets! Magnets! Magnets, yeah. transistors, and radiation. Yeah, Stan Lee... When I read his stuff, it's clear that he has a lot of respect for science and scientists, but doesn't understand the science well enough and figures, well, if I don't know why it's not possible, then it is possible. So, when he's working mostly from a position of ignorance, for lack of a better term, then anything is possible. It never stops me. (laughs) Hold on, wait a minute. I just, I want to quote that one. If you're working from a position of ignorance, anything is possible. (laughs) That's just a great theory, right? (laughs) It's my mantra. (laughs) Uh, anyway uh, so I mean what was your take on these two stories because we really didn't get too into detail on it Blaine where where do you what did you think of these as far as how it fit into Acts of Vengeance and even as a standalone or two standalones yeah treating it as a standalone this is actually the only issue of the series I've read i picked up about a dozen scattered issues through the series at the local convention a couple of years back, but they just haven't bubbled up to the top of the priority list. It was more, hey, these are cheap, and we now understand why. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the Hawkeye story, okay, yeah, Hawkeye is up against a villain he hasn't fought before, but that really just means it's an Avengers villain, and I think they picked Boomerang because what's Hawkeye's skill set to tackle someone solo? It, it might work better as part of the ongoing Hawkeye serial, because I do know he was serialized throughout this. I I think my understanding is that they were all split books, 
And from the start, most or all of them ha- Hawkeye story, and then the other ones were rotating characters. I so think it, that's correct. Yeah, it might fit better in the big picture. Here, it kind of fits the bill for Acts of Vengeance, but when that Loki is putting on the facade, because the average reader doesn't know it's Loki yet, they haven't officially revealed it, and he walks to the walls and gives Boomerang the nudge he needs, it completely drops the plot line. Boomerang came for security videos he doesn't get, and instead of reporting back to his employer, he goes after Hawkeye, because some random guy who walked through the wall, when he was looking for the ghost, told him that that would be a good idea. Yeah, I thought that was a ghost for a second, until I remembered this was Acts of Vengeance. Yeah. Uh, and then for the second story, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that the creators mixed up Andy the Awesome Android with the Super Adaptoid. Because, I mean, both Marvel and DC have the the villains that adapt their powers and can take on the Avengers, but I didn't think that was ever Awesome Andy. And yet here he's mimicking Stingray and Black Widow. Yeah, well, I mean, Andy was... Was he, he was like the puppet of the Mad Thinker. Yeah, I don't remember. I, I, I was wondering that too. I'm like, can he do that? But I thought maybe I just missed stuff. Yeah, I don't remember Awesome Andy ever doing this, but I do remember a villain who did that showing up in Avengers. But I don't remember Andy the Android at this point appearing anywhere except in Fantastic Four. So if you're reading just this book, it might get you into... Acts of Vengeance, because like we found out at the end, hey, they put out the Avengers emergency call, one Avenger showed up. And we do have that montage page of, you know, why Thor, Iron Man, you know, why these other Avengers are so busy. You know, Quasar, Captain America, the the whole West Coast team, even though there's only actually two of them on that panel. Three. Human Torch. Original. Oh, right, yeah, it was US Agent I was missing, Yes. Although I think technically at this point, because reading the West Coast Avengers, I don't know if the Human Torch is a team member or just someone that they're hanging out with. I don't. He was involved in that, but I don't remember if he was actually a member of the team. Uh, I forget exactly he got voted in, but yeah, he was hanging around. Yeah, so we've got the Jim Hammond Human Torch, U.S. Agent, and Wonder Man fighting the UFOs, Quasar versus Absorbing Man, Captain America versus Namor, and yeah, Thor versus Juggernaut, which is. Lacking the New Warriors, which is my favorite part of that story. That's where they first appeared. And Iron Man versus the Wrecker. So that I actually found the second story a little more satisfying than the first. As we've already covered, the art isn't great. Uh, when you've got Al Milgram coming in as a guest penciler, my understanding is that at this point he was doing a lot of editing. Like he was editing Marvel Fanfare. He was doing some writing. He was inking some other books. And when they had him penciling, as they did in the Hawkeye story here, it was less because his work was great, but more because he would do a decent job and he could do it quickly. So if they were behind on deadlines, they could hand him a story and he would, you know, sort of help them get back on schedule. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's not the greatest of penciling, but it's not doesn't look rushed. I'll give him that. Well, and the, as for the second... Oh, sorry, the, the inking on it is... I, I don't like Don, Don Heck as an inker. There have been times I enjoyed Don Heck as an anchor, but he wasn't... I mean, I don't know how much of the the issue here is that this is the art team they bring in when they've got scheduled deadlines, so they don't have the time to put into it that they generally would want. But yeah, the finished product isn't satisfying to me, whichever end it's on. 
Either Al Milgram's pencils were rushed, or Al Milgram's pencils were not well represented by Don Hex inks, or both. I'm I'm going with the latter. I'm gonna say both. Yeah. I, I don't think I don't think the pencils are are particularly detailed, and I don't think the inking is very strong. And I think there's an awful lot of panels where there's really no background work done at all. Yeah, in that first story for sure. The second one is a little bit better for the art. Again, a lot of characters, but it, it doesn't feel like it was refined. And when this is the really the only appearance of this team or this group of characters. Again, it could very well be a rush job. On the second so, one, are you talking about the second one now? Yes. On the second one, if, if the facial work was better, I, I think I'd be pretty satisfied with the artwork. I just think it's, yeah. I think the faces are poorly rendered. Yeah, you're right. The body work is well done with them. And the back, there are backgrounds in virtually everything. The shading is is good. I think you know. I, I mm-hmm. think overall, you know, it's 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 a fairly well drawn story, except for the faces. And and yeah, I don't know and if that's I don't know if that's a reflection on uh, Dwayne Turner or Chris Ivy because I'm really not particularly familiar with either of them. Yeah, yeah, that that's one. And I mean, as far as the story is concerned, it's sufficiently well told, but I do think it would have come across better if it had been published earlier in the schedule because at this point all, all the books that it flashes to have been released in previous weeks of the schedule so I think you know what, what's keeping them so busy that mystery what's going on if they'd left those those panels out and had them wondering about it and we read this if you're buying the whole Acts of Vengeance off the shelf before those stories came I think that would build anticipation but if you're buying all of Acts of Vengeance, and let's face it, if you were buying Avengers Spotlight, which they renamed just to try and give it a sales boost, you've probably already read both Avengers and Avengers West Coast. And I, I don't know that it would do a lot to entice you to grab that other book at this point. Hmm. One I thing I'll say... Sorry, Paul, go ahead. I was just going to say, I didn't even think of it from that perspective, but that's an, an interesting way to look at it. One thing I'll say about the second story, since it's written by Joy McDuffie, reading it, now looking back, of course, years later, it feels almost like a uh, him preparing for doing Justice League Unlimited. You know, yeah. we're going to do, do an episode, just a random one-off episode featuring five various members. Five various un, unsung members. Yeah. I mean, th- this is a motley crew he's got here with Stingray, Moondragon, Hellcat, uh... Was it Black Widow and Captain Marvel? Captain Marvel, the Monica one. Yeah, yeah. So it, it reminds it, me a lot of JLU episodes, like the one with um, what's that one? The one with Vigilante and uh, Stars and Stripe and uh, okay, what's that team actually called? The Seven Soldiers of Victory. Yeah. And he was doing that fairly regularly now too, because this came out between issues two and three of the second volume of Damage Control. So, if you were reading Damage Control. He had he'd done two miniseries. The both started in 1989, and one mm-hmm. finished in 1990. Both four issues about you know the team that comes and clean up after the superhero battles. They're mostly a comedic book, but every book has three or four guest stars juggling the cast of the very superheroes that they cross paths with, including some of the villains. Like, I mean, the Wrecker shows up to claim his crowbar from the Lost and Found. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh. That explains the damage-controlled name check in early in the story. Yeah. All right. And now, just because we didn't comment on it all, uh, at, didn't comment on it at all, uh, the cover 
to me is kind of a hot mess. I, I don't. It, it it doesn't grab me in the slightest. It doesn't really. I mean, I guess it is reflective of what's in the story, but it just looks like a bunch of just characters. It's hard to even really define who's who. You have to look really closely. The only one who who jumps out at you that you figure out who she is immediately on viewing it is Hellcat. Everybody else, you kind of got to look a little bit more carefully to figure out who you're dealing with here. Uh, the action is all kind of jumbled. The perspective on Awesome Andy looks, frankly, it looks terrible to me. Uh, I do not like this cover at all. I really can't argue too much. I mean, I think Hellcat and Black Widow stick out a bit more than the others, but yeah, Moon Dragon and Firebird are kind of covered up by Black Widow. And Captain Marvel, the way she's drawn, you almost have to look again to see if that's a person or just some random thing of light or colors. And you really and yeah, can't tell it's an awesome Andy at all. No, not until actually I read it and went, oh, that's what's on the cover. I mean, it says it on the cover. It says it's Reserve Avengers against the Awesome Android. But it's really, they don't give you much to, you know, in the visual to, to let you see that that's who you're dealing with. Plus, a little insulting to the lead feature of this whole series when it says, plus Hawkeye, yeah. and he's actually the first story. I expected them to be the first story and him the backup. Yeah, it would have made more sense. Yeah, and even looking at it, if I look at the, the cover as a thumbnail in my database software, so kind of like what it would look like on the comic shelves from the other side of the store, the way it's set up with Awesome Andy's left arm and left leg positioned with the Black Widow, they're, the way that they overlap, it's not clear where some characters end and others begin. It, it's a muddle. You, I, I totally agree with Paul when you say it's not clear that that's awesome, Andy, at all. And if you look at it smaller from a distance, like on the shelves, it almost looks like you know, that awesome Andy's limbs are coming out of Black Widow and that's all one monster and not the Black Widow attacking with her Widow's Bite, which are pink on the cover and yellow everywhere else I can recall including the interior mm-hmm. I, I don't really think Firebird's cape is at the right angle for where, they, where she's flying either yeah yeah you're right Yeah. actually I was just went through the pages real quick and counted it so they're actually both, it's a, it is fully a split book both are 11 pages long but yet the Hawkeye story feels longer than it should be and the other story feels a bit rushed feels like yeah. it would have been better if they gave that other one a couple of pages and maybe the Hawkeye story they could have eliminated the little intro of Boomerang having a mission that he never bothers to complete we could have just got rid of that completely and that feels like filler oh but Boomerang's got some wonderful teeth in the second panel of page two <laughs> yeah I actually had that up just now you're right unfortunately okay, he's the, he's the one of the only people at least in the first story that has the fine teeth because everybody else is just a white like brick for the teeth. There's no definition. Yeah, I I wonder maybe if we read issue 26 it would make more sense why that scene was there. It might be there more for continuity. But yeah, that opening sequence when he's looking for the ghost and then takes advice from some complete stranger who walks through walls, it still strikes me as very odd and very convenient. It would have been better, I think, had Loki approached Boomerang in private someplace and sent him immediately after Hawkeye, and that was just how it began. Yeah, I think so, yeah. too. They, sorry, yeah. go on. 
sorry, I'm just going back to, to Bill's point about Firebird's cape on the cover here, or Firebrand. Mm-hmm. I'm, yeah, looking at it, yeah, you're right, the cape doesn't work with physics, but as I look at it more closely, I think if they reposition the cape to match the physics of how she's moving, that would cover up her butt, and that wasn't allowed in <laughs> covers in the 80s and 90s. Oh, so there was a scientific principle. The principle of puberty. Yes, the, the principle of our biggest market is young, you know, boys just entering puberty. Let's well, not try that, to expand to other markets. Let's just try to capture that entire market. Well, that fully explains the Black Widow's pose, too. Yep. I'm surprised she's not twisted halfway. Mm, towards to show, us, you mean? Yeah, to show the butt, too. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised. Like, no, no, no I mean to show off more of the, the, the top. Well, no, that's what I'm saying. She's twisted halfway, then she can show both. Yeah, that's why I'm actually surprised that her right leg is extended because if it was a little bit lower, they'd be able to show off Moon Dragon too. Yeah, nobody liked Moon Dragon then. Probably because she was bald. Then, I mean, I have nothing against bald people. I'm just saying. Although, know, wasn't this when Sinead O'Connor was big? <laughs> well, there was Persis Kambata from you know. Well, no, this is '89. This was years later. I, I was thinking of Star Trek: The Motion Picture. So this would be Persis Kambata from Nighthawks. Actually, that would be 82, 83, somewhere around there anyway. Yeah, because the one I'm thinking of is Robin Turney from Empire Records, who I thought looked better when she shaved her head than before she shaved her head. But that was like five years later, too, or six years later. Yeah. And Paul's probably thinking, what? I am. I am. <laughs> <laughs> I'm old. I am old. What can I tell you? So, anything more on this one, or should we rate it? Yeah, let's just finish with this one and move on. All right, so it's your book, Blaine. You do the first rating. Okay. I don't know if you want to rate the two stories separately or if you want to rate the book on a whole. It's up to you. Yeah, I I don't think you can read just one story or the other unless you pick up the book and either start in the middle or stop halfway. So might as well rate it as a whole. Um, yeah, I'd give it maybe like a... a Reading it without reading the rest of Acts of Vengeance, it might be a 4 out of 10 if you just pick it up and read it in isolation. If you need it as like piece of the continuation with Acts of Vengeance or with the ongoing Hawkeye story, if the issues before and after are better than this one, I don't know. That might boost it up a little bit for the pieces in the middle, but yeah, it's it's more on the unimpressive side of, of halfway. Yeah, I'm going to... I mean, generally, we, we hit it with... Uh... Like school grades, which should be right, okay. up, right on your wheelhouse. No, no problem. Uh, okay. I'm, I'm going to give the cover an F because I think it's terrible, actually. I don't think it's eye-catching. I don't think it's enticing to buy it. Uh, if I want to try and find something positive to say, it's colorful. It's uh, about all I got. Um, the interior art... I think the first story looks kind of, first story looks pretty bad. I'm going to I'm going to just just elevate it above an F and give it a D minus. The second story, except for the faces, I think it's pretty solid, but the faces drag it down. So I'm going to give the second story a C on the artwork. Uh story-wise, they're both kind of light, nothing much to them stories, but they're acceptable reading, so I'm going to say a C plus on the two stories. And overall, I will give this book a C minus. All right, I guess. Do you want to go next, Bill, or you want me to go? 
Um, I'll, I'll go next. Uh, uh-huh. I'll give I'll give the cover three Bs for bald boobs and butt, which would work out to be a D. <laughs> D cup. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I didn't say that. Uh, the uh, wow. Oof. The interior art. Mm, it'll average out to a C minus. And the stories are kind of, they're all right, you know, but still it's not must-read must comics. Um, so it's going to be like a like a, mm, a D+. Plus. So we're looking at a D+, plus, maybe just a D plus for me. All right. So the cover, I'm going to give a D because it is kind of just a mess. It's just a mess. And for the whole the book itself, I really, it's hard to break it down for me. It's all just, I mean, the first story feels too long. The second story feels like it needed more pages, but it's a better story. The art's okay overall. It's serviceable. You know, it's nothing horrible, but nothing really stand out. And it's the same thing for the stories. It's just kind of like a book you read because it's there to read. But if someone says, hey, did you read Avengers Spotlight 27? There's a pretty good chance you'll go, no, I never read it. it you know, it's, it's, a, it's a whole, on the whole, just a C book. There's nothing horrible. There's nothing memorable. It's what just book were like, yeah, we talking see. about? Like, I don't even know anymore. Uh, what's the, I think we're talking about something Wolverine. <laughs> we just um, lost, we lost 20 minutes of our lives. <laughs> you know, I, I just caught a... Uh, <laughs> Mm, I think I just caught a flub. What's that? So look on page 14 of... Um, That's why I bathe. <laughs> so you don't catch flubs? Exactly. Okay. Yeah, I'm on 14. So look at where he's getting ready to step out of the window, and then he puts his bow up over the line. Where's his bowstring? And then it's not in the next one, but it's there when he falls in the bag. See it? The bowstring magically reappears on the bow. But he uses the bow to hop on the wire to slide down. It's the magical retracting bowstring. Maybe it is. And he restrung it in midair before he landed on the bag. It has a tension thing that Stark put in there. Yeah, okay. Science! Yeah. <laughs> to be fair, if you have Tony Stark and the Black Panther backing you, you know, backing you up with you know, doing, making things for you, I can pretty much believe almost anything. Mm, let's see. No, I was going to say, uh, was Tony Stark still drunk at this time? Oh, he, might no, have made he it was before. Iron Man. Yeah. Oh, he was back. That's right. Yeah, that's, yeah he was back yeah. at this point. Was he the, sil- he was the silver, the, the Scarlet Centurion or the Silver Centurion at 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 this phase, if I remember correctly? Uh, no, he was red and gold, like we oh, see okay. later in this very issue, which speaks what? to Al's point Where? about how memorable it is. Oh, look at that. Oh. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, this was... The Centurion was like a couple years earlier than this. That's like 83, 84... Oh, okay. between 83 and 85, I think. Because yeah, this so, would have been later in the Iron Man series after yeah, that. Yeah, earlier this year is when he had the, the spine injury. So at this oh, point, he cannot he walk the without the armor. Right. This is the Professor Xavier Tony Stark. <laughs> yeah, but with hair. Yeah. His wheelchair at the ball cap around drinking... To me, my Avengers! <laughs> <laughs> All right, so moving on. Uh, you or me, Al? Um, I don't care. It's your show. Do you want to go next or do you want to clean up? 
Uh, I'm gonna. I'll go next because right. I think your book is gonna a good one to close it out on. Okay. So I I have Die Hard Year One Number Five from December of two thousand and nine, produced by Boom Studios at a price of three ninety nine, written by Howard Chaikin and with art by Gabriel or Gabriel Andrade Jr. So this, the series, as I said, was produced by Boom Studios. It ran eight issues long, and it takes place a decade before the events of the first Die Hard film. Issues one through four took place in 1976 during the Bicentennial Celebration and involved the hijacking of a yacht. And then five through eight take place in 1977, about a year later, during the Summer of Sam and the New York uh, Blackout. Cover is by Dave Johnson... Joe Ju- and Joe Jusco shows John McClane with a magnificent head of hair holding a pistol aimed off camera with a secondary image of a bank robbery uh, and it's all bathed in orange light. The story opens on July 13, 1977 with a narration talking of the events that had New York on edge. John McClane is partnered with a woman named Olga Crucis and they're speaking to a young teen that's handing out flyers about some recent robberies of massage parlors. We cut to Broadway where we meet Alan Oster, an unemployed actor dressed in a Hasidic Jew outfit. He goes into a parlor named Eve's Apple where a tired businessman can take an afternoon stroll through the garden of earthly delights. Back to John and Olga where John is enjoying the delights of a dirty water dog as Olga explains why he shouldn't. They ask a street vendor about his license, but John buys a belt instead of hassling the dude. She then brings John to a gyro stand, so she's got different... <laughs> different I guess it's a case of pick your poison, because neither, neither one is going to be particularly healthy for you. We cut to a woman named Terry Keller, who is a, the sole tenant of a recently renovated building in Midtown Manhattan, and she's arguing on the phone with somebody named Peter. We learn in the later issues that's actually the government... Governor's son, who has some, uh, he, she, she's engaged him because he has uh, photos of her that she doesn't want revealed. <laughs> Cut to tux- oh, okay. Tuxedo, New York, an hour and a half north of New York City, where the Rice Brothers, three wannabe gangsters, are in a diner talking about their situation in life. We cut again to the 35th Precinct, which is one of the command centers for the Son of Sam Task Force. John and Olga are being chewed out by their commanding officer, who is not a fan of what appears to be an affirmative action placement of Olga. The two officers conduct witness interviews of the parlor robberies, getting different descriptions of the perpetrators from each of the uh, witnesses. John almost immediately surmises that the robberies may have been conducted by the same person in different outfits. Because John just knows everything. We go yes, back to... But Olga knows her movies. That's true. Yeah, she's the one that brings up the movie, right? Yeah, she's the one that mentions Rashomon. Yes, (laughs) and anybody who wants, go to Is It Yours and listen to Blaine and I discuss Rashomon. Back to Eve's Apple, where our Jewish-dressed actor is beating up the masseuse and robbing her. Back to Terry Keller, who's attempting to get access to a safe, safe deposit box, but can't without the permission of the box's owner. She storms out, and that, again, refers to her whole situation with the governor's son. Cut to the Indian Point Power Station, where Tuxedo's New, Tuxedo New York's gangsters, the Rice Brothers, are uh, facilitating or co- casing the facility and making plans. 
John and Olga are on the road and get a call that another massage parlor, Tahisha, is being robbed by the same dude, this time dressed like a hippie. John goes on foot to get there more quickly and calls into the robber, who is armed with an automatic weapon. He has seven hostages, and we're at a standoff as the issue ends, and we're told it's to be continued. Now, this series, from what little research I was able to do on it, was apparently not very highly thought of, uh, both for the artwork, which is a little stiff, and I don't necessarily disagree with that, and also for the story, which they feel doesn't really have much in the way of characterization or storytelling. On the other hand, when I read through this, and I have not read the balance of the series, actually, but I kind of felt that it had almost a little bit of a cinematic tone. I could almost see this as a... Uh, like a, a ten-episode Netflix series showing, you know, John John McClane's early years. Uh, so I kind of liked it, even though it, you know, it, it has some weaknesses to it. But I thought it was fairly enjoyable to read. What do you guys think? Well, there were some. I mean, there, I agree with you a bit on like the cinematic feeling of it. And while I did have some issues of like some of the subplots going on there, I had no clue what was happening with like the. The uh, the get the gangsters in tuxedo or the woman, but I kind of, since I had read one through four years ago when they came out, I knew this was probably part one. So I figured it'll tell me eventually, you know, if I'd read more of it. So I wasn't too worried. Although they did kind of feel like it was a mid episode part of their story. Like we were missing. Like I felt like I was missing the beginning a bit though. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the whole thing is with this power plant when they're casing the power plant that they end up uh, causing the New York blackout. And that's okay. part of their, uh, you know, their whole scheme. But some of the storytelling also, some of the things, now, I understand what he's doing, trying to do with the time, showing the day, but some of the things at the time don't make sense. I mean, some points, it's like, okay, there's a jump, I can see it. But then there's also points where, like the very first thing, 11.24 a.m., you see the, John and his partner talking to the kid. And then the next page, the conversation continues but now it's 11.31, but there doesn't seem to be a jump in the conversation. It seems to be continuing on right from before. And I'm like, wait a minute. John spent seven minutes thinking of the next thing to say. Exactly. So I kind of gave up with that. So it's kind of like, it felt like then what was the point of doing that if it didn't feel like it was done consistently well? Don't disagree with you there. I think, uh, I think the time aspect of it is almost a little bit of a gimmick uh, as it's used in there just to try and give it an extra uh, it's it almost feels like they're playing on uh 24 yeah i mean if it felt like uh, they're using it too much like he could have cut out half of them and yeah it I, I, I don't disagree it would have done its job you know would have shown us that the that. day is passing yeah but here it's well, like no it's too much see to me i would wonder i'd have to read the other issues to find out you know when that was introduced in the process because at when I was reading it, I found that those those timestamps were the biggest and strongest indication that it had jumped scenes. Because there's enough characters that it's not always clear when it goes from one location to the other. And in most comics, when you're changing locations, they actually use a, a shift in the color palette to help communicate that so that it just looks different and you pick up on it right away. But Stephen Downer seems to be using the same color palette at every point in the city. I mean, it does give me the feel of, you know, a, a slightly dirty New York on a hot day, so that tone comes through clearly. 
but it's also coming through in the interiors and other places. So if you had told me that, yeah, when Chaikin first wrote this, he didn't have the times as the jumps, but then they were putting it in in post-production when they said, yeah, it's the artist not making this clear as another sign. But I could be wrong about that, because the other thing that that time jump does is it, it also tells you clearly this is all one day, and this is not you know different scenes from different days. So that there's a lot going on, whether our two leads are part of it or not. And, and I don't disagree with either of you, but I think Al's point is that you could still do the same thing, but just have less timestamps in it. Yeah, I don't think we needed the timestamp between them getting, like we have a timestamp of them getting their dirty water dog, walking across the street, seeing the guy, asking if he has a vendor's license, and then we have a timestamp of like two minutes later, you know, mm-hmm. with him responding, I have it here somewhere. Like that, like some, like a lot of them could have been kept in still, I agree with you. Because it does help showing us that scenes have changed. Or, t- you know, we're, we're doing something different. But, like, some of them just felt, like, superfluous. I th- at least I thought so. Like, yeah. we didn't need that next one right there on the next page. Yeah, like, we could use the 1116. Did we also need 1124, 1131, 1137, 1138? Exactly. I mean, but, yeah, actually scrolling through it now, we've got a timestamp at the top of every individual page. All the way through. Hmm. I guess maybe they were going for consistency like that, which I can understand, oh. but it just feels oh, like too no. much. Sorry, I was wrong. That's true up to 11.50. But no, uh, when they, oh no, that one has the 12.01 as well. It's at the bottom of the panel. 12.11, yeah. Yeah, I'm skimming 11, through too. Yeah, 111, 1.12. But like here, showing them like 12.11, that page of them interviewing people, and then 1.11 and them walking out. That works. Yeah. I think that makes sense to me. But and some of those having... other ones were too much, I thought. Yeah, and having two different events at one twelve p.m. Yeah. Because the, the masseuse getting beat up and robbed while the other character is trying to get into the the safety deposit box, that's simultaneous. Yeah, that's and fine. If you're going to use that as kind of a gimmick that you're going to do that on every page, then maybe it's incumbent upon you as the writer or the artist, because the artist might do the plot, you know, actually do all the layouts and plotting of or the, uh, you know, or the, the pacing of it. Yeah, it could also uh, so be maybe maybe pace it so that yeah. there's a significant point, you know, for each page to, that the time actually means something each time. Yeah, not that, not that that's an easy job. Uh, I don't think so at all. But you know what? That's if you're going to do it, do it right. Yeah, but I will agree with Blaine on some of the art, like the coloring, and like how it made it look like a hot day in New York in the '70s. Now, granted, I don't really remember much of New York in the 70s, even though I was there, because by the time the 70s ended, I was only five. But from movies I've seen, it does kind of give me the same feel that a lot of those movies that were filmed in New York at the time. So I'll give them that. Yeah, I I don't know what New York was like in the 70s. I was born in 77, and my only visit to New York took place while Obama was on the campaign trail for his first presidential run. So well, I would be the one. I would be the one of the four of us who would have some knowledge of this because I was a uh, a teenager at this point, and uh, I think overall it, it it captures the feel a little bit, at least the way I understood it. I wasn't, you know, hanging out in Manhattan to speak of. You know, I lived in Brooklyn and pretty much confined myself to that area, but I do remember the uh, you know the Son of Sam scare, uh, very 
strongly and how pervasive that was in everybody's mind at the time and just the fear that people had just to be out on the street at night and uh you know i i, I don't think it's necessarily done i don't think there's any injustice to, done to it in the in this book not that they're, they're not specifically hanging on that we don't have any nighttime scenes but just it, it, the way the book is put together it just feels tense at least that's the impression i got and i'm and i'm really talking just impressions not necessarily anything that's specifically given uh and and it it just kind of to me it captures the feeling now the artwork in general i, I tell you it almost looks like howard chaykin drew this book even though he didn't uh, just, just to, to some extent, as far as the the, the faces and everything, uh, and and the book, the art in the book to me is is it's a little inconsistent. Like the the first splash page, second page of the story itself, uh, just kind of the way John McClane is drawn. He looks very stiff and and just just his body language just doesn't look right his legs look too thin his his upper body looks a little too uh, barrel chested and, and his head is leaning at a strange position I, I don't know he just doesn't look right to me but then there's other like you know you turn the page and then there's a, a shot of him in the upper corner of his face and to me it looks like bruce willis with long hair so i you know i think that's a pretty decent shot so it, it kind of goes back and forth a little bit and then uh when the person goes into the uh the massage parlor and there's the woman there uh it looks like it's gamora with the coloring oh yeah you're right well i and also i think while you're talking about that i think that's some of the problems of trying to do the uh representation of a real person as opposed to a created character because i think like olga comes across as much more consistent than john mcclane because olga is not a actor that we know of we all know what bruce willis looks like but I, I think he did a fairly mm. decent job of catching Bruce Willis's facial appearance. I mean, it's it's a little cartoony. This isn't you know photorealistic by any stretch of the imagination. But I I I think you know he basically caught, captured it. Uh, my biggest problem with the Bruce Willis drawings is that one that I pointed to that I, I just feel his body just looks awkward and it doesn't look right. It, it looks too too cartoony in that one. But otherwise, I, I think. You know, I, I think he did an okay job with him. Yeah, well, no, it wasn't bad. It, I got enough that it was, you know, felt like I was looking at more or less Bruce Willis. My own, my main problem with the issue is that it made me want a dog. It made me want a hot dog. <laughs> Not a gyro. A street dog. Yeah. Nah, I got gyro sometimes, but I, I, my preference was uh, dirty, a dog and a uh, knish. Uh, you're making me hungry. A little mustard squirt in a knish. Mm, it was great for the train ride home. What do you well, think, Phil? Well, your 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 talk of food has got me so hungry. I think we're gonna have to go have a snack. Um, have an apple I, or an orange. Have <laughs> a snack. Oh. I'll I'll give a quick review because I I have to. Unfortunately, I need to step away. Uh, I like the cover, um, even with the large amounts of orange. I think that's that's not a bad younger version of Bruce Willis. It doesn't look like you know too. It's photorealistic, but it's different just enough that it doesn't completely look like Bruce Willis. And there was a few spots where I think you're right, it does catch the caricature. The spirit of him, especially when he's like looking at the, uh, when she's, his partner's explaining about 
the mystery meat. And he's like, you know, like 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 the the face he's making. You could see Bruce Willis making that face. But again, it's not strictly photo. You know, it 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 does look like it, it was copied. That the artist is doing their own thing. Um, I, I know you said that you think it's kind of stiff. I mean, I I really have no major problems with the art. I I kind of like the the jumping from story to story because it does like you guys said have a feeling of like twenty four where this is like the opening setup act of of a movie getting all the characters in place giving us a little backstory in a different way. Um, so I would give the cover. I'd give the cover like a B plus A minus. The interior art I think would be a B plus, and the story is. Uh, I mean, we're getting a lot of setup. No real payoff yet, so but I would still give the story a a, a B as well. So I guess I overall be a B plus B book for me. Yeah, cool. So and I'm gonna have to listen to the rest of you guys' stuff when the episode comes out. So right, I will. Sorry, see you. you can't stay with us, but uh, right. you take care of what you got to do, and we'll see you next yeah. time, Bill. Okay, I'll see you guys later, and everyone else out there, have a good night. See you later. Later, Bill. All right. Bye. Bye, Billy. All right. Yep. All right. Uh, should I give my rating, or do you have anything else? To, any other observations on on this? Um, yeah, I don't know that I really have much to to add to what's already been said. I mean, it's yeah, it, it's it's definitely a middle chapter. There's no question about that. But it's not a number one, so that's okay. Right? It's not pretending to be anything other than a middle chapter. But isn't it the first chapter? Because I thought you said Let's, one through. I thought one through four was the seventy-six story. Yes, so this, is this, is the, this, this is this is four. actually the first chapter of the second story arc. And that was the other yeah. thing I said. That was a slight problem, not a huge problem, but slight. It, it's a lot of the, the Bruce Willis stuff and his partner kind of feels like it does feel enough like a part one, except for them getting you know it's not, we don't see them get assigned the case, but otherwise it feels like a part one for them. But the other parts kind of feel like a part two or three. Yeah, it does feel like we're stepping in in the middle of their lives. So, you know, if this is the first time we've seen all these guys, and obviously you would know better than I would, then, yeah, we are clearly stepping in in the middle. It is a middle chapter in their lives, even if it's not a middle chapter in this story arc. I suspect that they would have done more to establish who John McClane is in issue one, because, I mean, reading this, I, I figured, well, that's going to be John McClane because I'm familiar with Die Hard. If I wasn't, it would take me a while to figure out who the narrator is. Like, I could easily match up the captions to the character on the page, but it's not a great first introduction to this character. So you, it, at least as far as John McClane's life is concerned, this is more of a part five than a part one. Because you, you do need to know who he is. But then again, what are the odds of people picking up uh, a comic book prequel to the greatest Christmas movie of all time and not knowing who he is. My mom knows who Di- my mom knows Die Hard, so <laughs> yeah. pretty much everyone does. I, I think that, you know, the first four issues take place during the bicentennial, uh, and that's a year earlier, and that's basically John kind of making his uh, you know, m- making his reputation and getting the respect of the uh, the force and that type of thing. So we we are coming into the second storyline. So and John is the only character that's you know that's got the through line because everybody else is is new to this part of the story. But I don't think it's an uncommon storytelling event to 
kind of join people's lives in progress and kind of learn about them as we go along, which is what you know, which is what we're pretty much doing here uh, with everybody except for John. And uh, I, I think it works effectively. I think you know you, you are sitting there with with uh, this this woman, and you know I, I know a little bit more because I just kind of looked read a little bit up on what was going on. But this Terry Keller, you you really don't know what's going on with her, why she's so angry, what she's trying to get out of the safe deposit box. But I'm kind of okay with that's to be determined and that's to be you know shown as as it goes on and i think that's exactly what we're getting here so i i really don't have a problem with the storytelling and like i said it was criticized for for a lack of characterization but i i feel like we're getting all we need here we we really know who john mcclain is this is just giving us kind of some of his background story so i don't really have a problem with that aspect of it either uh I guess I'll give my rating overall. I think the cover is pretty solid. I'm not going to quite go up to the B plus A minus level that Bill did. I would say it's just a solid B. Uh, it's pretty well drawn. It's you know it's it's got almost like a uh, '60s pop art feel about it, like almost almost like a Jim Steranko feel about it. Uh, so I, I I I like it. I think it's pretty solid. The interior art. There was that one panel that I don't like the way McLean is drawn. It almost looks like to me like it's out of Mad Magazine instead of a uh, comic adaptation of Die Hard. But the rest of it, I think the art is fairly well rendered. I think it tells the story well. I think uh, that the fa you know even though he's a uh, basically a licensed character, he doesn't conflict with everybody else in the way he's drawn. Uh, I'd, I'd say it's pretty solid, and, and I would say. A solid B on the interior art as well. I like the story. I like the way it pulls me in. I re it makes me want to read more. So again, I'm going B. So B's all around for me, and I'm going to give the book a B. All right, I guess I'll go. <clears throat> so cover-wise, I think I like it a bit better than you. It feels to me, I, I go with what you're saying, a bit of like a 60s pop art. It almost feels like a 70s movie po painted movie poster. I mean, especially with that uh, Steve McQueen outfit he has on on the cover. So it could be bullet. Exactly. So that kind of it kind of evokes that for me. So I'm giving it a B plus with the cover. I like that orange cover a lot actually. The art inside is pretty good though. I mean, otherwise it is it is fairly good. Like I said, it does give me that feel of, of at least what I've seen from movies that were filmed at that point in New York. So I kind of now granted that, that could be for all I know, all these movies actually weren't filmed in New York, they were filmed somewhere in Canada. You know, they filmed in Vancouver for all I know, but Filmed in L.A., the, the first Die Hard movie was actually the brand new Fox executive building, so that the floors that were under construction were actually under construction, and they didn't need to build a set, so it was cheaper. Yeah, so it could be L.A., but either way, it's what I think of when I think of that time. So the art, and it doesn't feel too stiff for me, and the McLean stuff, for the most part, you kind of look at it and you go, yeah, that kind of looks like Bruce Willis, like supposed to be Bruce Willis, and since it's supposed to be Bruce Willis 10 years younger than most people think of him, it's gonna look a little different anyway. I mean, like we, you know, one thing he has that whole head of hair. So I'm gonna give the artist straight up B. Story, I'm gonna go a little. Um, it's not bad. I mean, some of the issues with some of the storytelling, like we said about the timing, is a little bit of you know confusion. And I'm trying to be charitable with the uh, some of the other characters because it does feel a little weird, like we're jumping in the middle. But then again. I know their lives aren't going to just start right here, and we, I know it's part one of a story, so I know I shouldn't be expecting all the answers right away. 
but I don't know if it's doing enough to make me really want to know more as opposed to go, huh? So I'm going to give the story a B-. minus. Um, so overall, I'm just going to give it a B. It's pretty decent. It's enough to make me curious to watch read the next part. Yeah, I'm in kind of a similar boat. Uh, I agree that the, the artist does have Bruce Willis's body language down. I think uh, more so than than a likeness. Like there's there's definitely some panels where it, it looks like Bruce Willis with hair. There's others where it doesn't. But even if it's not like you know like a likeness rights kind of thing, it's clearly not tracing a picture of Bruce Willis. He does carry himself the way Bruce Willis carried himself. So I've got no issues there. Honestly, my biggest issue with the art is that uniform color palette all the way through. I almost wonder if I'd have liked the art more if it was a black and white book. Hmm. Mm. I, I think you may be onto something there. I hadn't considered that. Yeah. That, hmm, interesting. Yeah. So it's, like we said, it's given that it's the middle, which I always find tough. I mean, I've got John and Wilson disease. If someone says, hey, there's this great issue of Superman that came out in 2009, I'll say, great, I'll add it to my reading list. Right now my DC read-through is in 1947, but I'll get to it. But now i got to go back and read all those Supermans. <laughs> yeah, it, that that's just it. It's okay. You want me to read issue six? You say issue 613 is great? Let me read the first 612 plus annuals and crossovers <laughs> and side books. Like I said, John M. Wilson disease. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if I'm reading this, I think like Al said, I'm I'm satisfied enough that if other issues in the series are convenient, I'll, I'll certainly pick them up and try to get more of the story. But it's not quite compelling enough that I'm going to go looking for them. It'll be more if I'm going through back bins and going, oh, that's here. Okay. And just stumble across it anyway. Uh, so, again, I'm going to give it, you know, uh, yeah, I would say I would try to give, say, the art a C plus and the story a B. So I'll give the, the whole book overall a B minus. All right, that's not unreasonable. So now we have one more book to get through. Yes. Blaine, you're still good to hang out for a little while longer? Uh, a little bit. I, I have to actually return a call to my mom here because they would have met with the, the doctors tonight to okay. figure out the next step for my dad. So like I, I said, the message that I think Al has seen, Yeah. Uh, I'm thinking I'll... If you don't mind, I'll jump in first on Sandman and then bow out to return that call and then go straight from there to pick up my wife. Okay. Fair enough. All right, I'll go as fast as I can with the synopsis then. Okay. All right, so, yeah, I have the Sandman number 31 because we had a conversation, like, what, two weeks ago, Paul? Yeah, about that. I went to with, with the aforementioned John Wilson. I went to ask John something about Sandman, and I had two conversations with John, one with Paul and one without, and I asked him on the wrong, on the one with Paul. And Paul said, no, I've never read Sandman. I said, oh, well, this is meant for John, but now I know what I'm bringing next time I do bins. And now, barely two weeks later, it's like, oh, well, I guess I know what I'm doing. <laughs> I just had to pick a good single-issue story, and hopefully I did. So we have the Sandman number 31, three Septembers in a January, written by Neil Gaiman, art by Sean McManus, colored by... Daniel Vazo, lettered by Todd Klein. So it starts in San Francisco in September of 1859. Despair is there taunting a man named Joshua, 
who's well fallen under despair, and she calls on the Sandman, Dream, with like a contest. Her delirium and and uh, desire basically want to have a test contest with him, kind of like the story of Job. Can you keep him from falling into one of our domains, from becoming you know filled with despair, desire, or delirious? And so Dream gives him a dream, and Joshua wakes up with this dream and writes a proclamation that he is now the emperor of the United States and sends out his proclamation to the newspaper who finds it so crazy that they publish it. And five years later, Joshua, now known as Emperor Norton I, uh, is still the emperor of the United States, but he is, of course, penniless and broke. Uh, he's spending his day hanging out outside a newspaper office. And the editor there, Sam, takes him out for dinner and they have a conversation, and uh, Sam is having problems with his storytelling, and Ebert Norton decides to help him out and write, writes out a proclamation that from now on, Samuel Clemens, a.k.a. Mark Twain, is the official storyteller of the United States. And at the restaurant, Dream is there watching him, and he receives a visit from Delirium, and she says that Joshua should be one of hers, but given his dream of being Emperor of the United States, because it's like madness, but... In every respect, he's actually sane. It actually, his madness is keeping him sane. So he's not hers. Uh, a couple years later, we have a family from Kansas visiting San Francisco, and they basically, there's a, it's almost like he's a tourist attraction. They pay him 50 cents, that's the official tax, and they get a receipt from him, which is like the, so they have an autograph. And then he receives a word from a Chinese immigrant who apparently is his, uh, his chancellor. And apparently he's helping deal with uh, negotiation with the uh, crime families there. And he's told to go, He's need, the emperor is needed at a place called the Cobweb Palace. And he's met there by a man who calls himself the King of Pain, who's apparently a dead man. And the king is offering Emperor Norton an empress so he can have a dynasty. He just needs to want one of these women that he's offering him. But... Norton announces, that, no, he is the emperor of the United States and wants for nothing. The city and the people there give him everything he needs. And so the king of pain returns empty-handed to Desire, who sent him there. And she says, I know he's lusting after them, but yet, as Dream tells her, but his dignity is too much. He is an emperor. That is all he needs. And so he does not fall to Desire either. And a couple years later, it's 1880, and uh, Joshua is walking through, or sorry, Emperor Norton now, is walking through a rainstorm and uh, falls down and dies. And despair finds him there and is amazed that even though he should be, he's d lying dead and penniless in the gutter, and yet he never despaired. Dream one. He never fell under any of the other domains. And at the end, uh, death arrives for Emperor Norton. And as she leads him away, she tells him that of all the king and queens that she's met, and she has met every single one, she liked him the best. And that is the story of the first and actually old and, and true story. Well, I don't know about the magical parts, but he was a real person. Emperor Norton did exist. Hmm. All right, Blaine. All right, so this is one that, uh, again, I was jumping ahead because for Sandman, I picked up the complete Neil Gaiman run, but I've only read the first volume so far. But this reminds me, I need to really get back to that. Yeah, but the nice thing I was enjoying it, but got distracted by the, you know, between the time it took things. to finish number one and start number two and life in general. Yeah, and there's a lot of stories like this where they can be read at almost any point, which is nice for someone like you or yeah. John. Yeah, it's, yeah, 
Although here it's like, oh, well, these characters exist, but it's not their first introduction, so it's still like to to go back. But yeah, of the issues we've read so far, I think for the back to the bins format, this is the best suited to it. This is the one that most easily stands alone. Because even though it is clearly not the first or last story we're going to have for, you know, Dream, Despair, Desire, etc. This is Joshua's complete story. So we get the beginning, the middle, the end. And I want to read more, not because I have lingering questions, but just because it's good. Right? It, it, this is a quality comic. I'd like to read more like this. That's what it really boils down to. They've done work not just with the artwork, but even the, the lettering and the speech balloons are very different. You know, with the, the color coding for the various... Uh, the endless. Uh, these, yeah, the endless here. Uh, you know, the, the color palettes as we go through also shift from location to location, which is a nice contrast to that last book we did. So we, we get the field, even as the time goes on, we're seeing shifts in things, and the, the colors are, are carefully chosen to show you who's going to be relevant and who's not. You know, the King of Pain is completely white, but he's got a very bright popping red for his outfit. Whereas the people, you can sort of track how they're doing and how important they're going to be almost by, you know, the colors of their outfits and how they're involved. So it, it's, you, you get everything you need to understand this story in this one issue. We've got some, you know, quality art stylized, so it's not necessarily photorealistic, but that's well suited to this when you're giving someone a dream and have the endless characters in here. And it, it's just, the kind of story where, yeah, this is well told. I was engaged. I'd like to read more. So if I were to, to give it a rating now, um, I don't know U.S. history. I'm assuming that when they've got the map of the U.S. there early on, the artist did look up what the map looked like at that specific point in time and reproduced it. So I, I will trust that that's there. I could also see why if you are familiar with it and they made a mistake, that would really stick in your craw. But I'm just going to assume it's right and give the issue as a whole uh, probably an, an A minus, and it might actually be promoted to A or A plus after reading the complete series and seeing how it all fits together. It might resonate a little bit more. Oh if I yeah, have more background with these characters. There's some stuff that from before. I'm not going to say what it is, but there's some stuff that actually is from bef earlier in the series and much later in the series that is because of this. Okay. Yeah, I generally agree with most of what you what you said there, Blaine. This book is definitely a little. Uh, it 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 marches to its own beat. It, you know, it it there's no oh god yeah there's no feel here uh, that they're trying to pander to a, a large audience. It's almost like we're going to try and put out the best book we can. We really don't care if we have an audience. That's what it feels like to me. Um, and sometimes it's the best way to get an audience. Yeah. Is not be worried about what the audience is. Just put out the best thing you can, and the audience will show up. You know, you, you look at the cover. The, it really doesn't have any of the traditional things that uh, that would make somebody just you know rush to it. I think, to some extent, again, I think you know they're saying we know we have a quality book, and 
we're going to get people through word of mouth. We're going to get people based on reputation, and then they're going to read this and they're going to like this. So we don't even need to write a you know to write to to put a cover on it that's going to you know really draw your eye to it. In fact, if anything, we want to put a cover on it that that creates a feeling of a little bit more sophisticated uh, look than you'd have in a traditional comic book. You know that that's trying to catch your eye to buy. Uh, you know, we're going, to, we're going to try and make it look more like a, like high art or high uh, literature than than what you know what's on the comic book shelves normally. In fact, the cover is actually I just realized it. I just realized it just now. It's basically panel one because it's him from outside, and then the first panel of the first issue is him looking out that window. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So the the interior art is is I think the interior art is striking actually. Um, it's it's not your traditional art. It almost looks like a, you know, like a, a, a Robert Crumb kind of thing. I don't know. Uh, yeah, it also has a bit of a Sam Keith feel, which is interesting because he was the initial penciler on the series. Mm, okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's uh, like one of his earliest works. It, it, you know, it, it it has the feel of a horror story, and it's not so far removed from it in what we're, you know, the actual story that we're getting. So I think it, it the, the, the tone and the art fit each other. Well, uh, yeah, it was supposed to be oh, like a horror story. Actually, that's a good, I didn't think about that. That's good. Or, or like a twilight zone episode. Yeah. The, and the, the color palette, you know, that Blaine mentioned with the exception of the King of pain and his bright red outfit, uh, for the most part, it's very muted, but it's, it's, ca- it's, it's very catchy to the eye. Uh, I, I really just, you know, it's it's a very pleasant book to read as far as the appearance goes, even though it's got a lot of characters that are not good looking. Uh, yeah, there's there's something about it that it's just you know it, it you there's there's so much detail in everything that you look at and and it just you know really just draws your eye into it and and you you know you, I I just like I said I just think it's it's really really well drawn uh, and then you have some some panels like I'm looking at a. I'm looking at page nine of the scan. You know, the middle panel has no color whatsoever in it. It's just black and white. And yet, because it's the center panel, it kind of stands out for that reason. Uh, you know, you go to page mm. 11, the bottom corner, there's, you know, precious little color in that one. Uh, there's, there's something about that, that you know, I guess lack of balance to the color uh, that goes against what traditional thinking would have and yet it works really well in here uh and the story is is you know it's pretty complex i uh i would love to see you know it, it makes me want to see more of what's going on between these characters the uh you know sandman and, and his siblings uh you know to, to understand a little bit more of the relationship that's going on there uh and the fact that it you know it does base itself in true factual you know, uh, history yeah. uh, with with Emperor Norton. Norton being a, a true character who declared himself the emperor of, uh, in, uh, what was it, in 1859. Uh, yeah. and, and, you know, it, it's just, it's very interesting to read. And, and uh, honestly, I didn't even realize this was, you know, based in, in fact. So in it, fact, um, I was reading up, now I didn't get a chance to look it up, but I read somewhere, I couldn't find out more about it, but I read somewhere, at least a blog of Neil Gaiman's, that he based the King of Pain off a real person as well. I don't know who that was, but I guess that's what he meant when they have that conversation when he meets him, saying, I thought you died, you know, it was gambling debts or something, committed suicide. Hmm. 
So obviously that will be a person. But I get ch- I wasn't able to find out who it was. But you yeah, know he from what I read most of the series, not all of it, but most of it. But a lot of at least a lot of the series, there's a lot of things like that where he puts in mixes in real things, real events, real people, you know, real historical people, I should say, with what's going on here. So it almost kind of gives it like a mythical quality, like you know maybe these are real, maybe these aren't. Because, I mean, yeah. as much as, you know, we enjoy the other books, we know nothing happening in Superman. You know, Superman, Lois Lane, Jimmy Olsen, Lex Luthor are never real. Bite your tongue. But this kind of stuff, you know, it's like, ooh, you know. Yeah, like definitely. Said, it's like a Twilight Zone type thing. You know, could this have happened? So all around, I just, you know, it, it's got me interested in reading more Sandman. And I think, you know, I will go just to paraphrase Blaine I will go with the John Wilson uh, sickness and when I do I think I have to start at the beginning and work my way through so that I can hopefully have a better feel for what's going on in it although I do think occasionally sometimes uh, and I'll use Fearscape which Bill and I reviewed uh, sometimes I tend with stories to read through them a little too quickly and I, you know, a story that's this rich and deep, uh, I need to take my time and go through it more closely because otherwise I'll miss some of the subtext and some of the uh, clues that we're getting as it's going on. Oh, yeah, because not to go too into detail because I don't want to spoil too much, but when Desire is pissed off at him later, well, that is also re- that also is, comes up in an, the second story arc. And also the last story arc is called The Kindly Ones. Which is what she threatens him with in this in this at the end of this her appearance in this issue, so you know it's a, it's a, it's definitely a single issue story, but yet if you're reading it as a whole, it does have ties to further parts of the story. This is a good one to introduce me to it, though, because it makes, a lot it of, makes me want to see more. Yeah, there are a lot of, there are a lot of issues like this where they're single issue ones, but if you read the whole series, a lot of times they come back. You know, it's either a callback to something else, or or something else will call back to this later on. So it gives it gives me a feel for why this story, why this series is so highly acclaimed. Mm-hmm. And again, all the little details. I mean, the like you said, like Blaine said, the lettering. Like each of the endless has their own way of their writing. Their their balloons are drawn. Dream is black war balloons with white lettering. Meanwhile, Delirium's, it's supposed to be like she is delirious. Everything is all random colors. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's the, as much as I enjoy, you know, stories of, you know, with death as a character, which is one of the, you know, I mean, I kind of have to if I'm doing a Thanos podcast. <laughs> if you're giving me a choice between Marvel's death and this death, I'm going to choose this death every day. Because well, she's Marvel's just so much more fun. And Marvel's death is so much more ambiguous. Yeah, either ambiguous or just evil. Or malicious, or manipulative. This one's just like I like that whole last page of her walking. Like, can I try your hat on? Yeah. Yeah, she's she's definitely a more engaging character. It's, it's almost like you don't mind dying so much. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, okay. Well, I guess it's you. That's fine. Oh. And yeah, there's really not much more I can say about what we're saying. I mean, it's really well written. The art is. I like the art a lot. Like I said, it reminds me a lot of Sam Keith and. I know the name Sean McManus. The only thing I can remember him from is a run of Aquaman, that like the one that came out before Peter David's run started. And I know he's done a bunch of other stuff, but I really can't remember. But I do like it a lot here. Yeah, I really don't. I'm not familiar with it at all. Actually, with him at all. 
but I really liked the art in this book a lot. Yeah. I'm, I'm already giving away my grade there, I think. Oh, yeah. But, uh... I don't think there's any. I don't. I don't think there's much mystery as to where I'm going to land on this one, based on what what we're saying about it. Uh, but why don't you give yours first? Uh, yeah, based on everything we're saying, I mean, it's great. I have to give this an A plus. I love the plus. I love this issue. I read a, um, a lot of this at one point years and years ago. Like we're talking probably like 20 years ago now. I had several of the trades, and I read read them. And this one just really stuck out of my memory. I just, it was just such an even though it's almost a sad story, I mean, it's about a guy who's basically living almost penniless, almost homeless, and yet it's a really nice, sweet story about him. He's happy. Mm-hmm. And he's content. Like, he's found a purpose, and he's doing it. And his purpose isn't a horrible one. And it's not to be a horrible person, either. And so, even though it ends with him dying dead in a gutter... You know, between that and the fact that I looked up and found out he was a real person, just always stuck in my mind. So there's also a nostalgia factor, too, for me for this one, especially. Right. So, yeah, I got to give it an A+. I love this one. I'm going to say, I I don't know where to land on the cover, because, as I described it, it, it's, it's certainly not seeking to do the things I generally expect to see in a cover. Um. I don't know what grade I would give it as a standalone. As part of a series, I think I'd look at it more highly, uh, and that's that's the reason why I'm not feeling any need to say anything negative about it. Uh, but if I'm just on the stand, you know, if I'm in the comic store and this is just in, you know, one pile of books next to, you know, Batman in one and Spider-Man in another, I don't know that this is going to really catch my eye. I think uh, so. Just you know, as a standalone cover, I probably have to give it just like a C. But as part of a series, I think I'd rate it probably higher if I was looking at it in conjunction with other books in this series. The interior art and the story, though, I'm right with you. I'm A-plus on them. Yeah. And I'm looking real quick, by the way, the covers of the last two issues, because they all have a similar theme. The theme, they're all called, because uh, this is called Three Septembers in a January. The issue before is called August, and the issue before that is called Thermidor, which I found out from reading this, during the French Revolution, they renamed the months. And so August was renamed Thermidor. <laughs> so, and they not only shared that, but the covers, which were all done by Dave McKeon, have a similar style. They're all, they all have that, like, panel. It's almost like, a, it's almost like a panel from the story in the block, almost like in the 70s and Marvel, when they had, like, the little panels inside the color. Right. With the, ti- with the title on the bottom with the uh, first letter really large and with a with extra color on it. So, like you said, there is a... There, there is a pattern... There is something going on there with the covers, if you're looking at all three of them together. Right, and I think that adds to the value of it in, in my mind. But, you know, we're rating it as a standalone, so that's why yes. I, I came in lower on it for that yeah. reason. can't argue with that. I cannot argue with that at all. So I guess that's it. Blaine, did Blaine actually jump off the call, or yes, he had to go with. Okay, yeah, I knew he had to go. I just, you know, he, we never formally mentioned that he was that he was gone. So uh, you know, I'll thank you and Blaine for coming on, uh, and you know, Bill, especially you know, it was kind of a a, a 
weird schedule today that you know bill was only available for so long blaine was only available for so long i appreciate that you were able to stay as long as you have been and it's always good to talk to you my friend no problem oh yeah same here thank you so much for listening to our show and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back issue awesomeness you can contact back to the bins to leave feedback comments questions suggestions and criticisms via email at bins at two truefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Nah, that sucks.